Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Coming up on this week's show, one of the original survival horror games is back. A live-action Pac-Man movie is on the way. And we get the history of shareware gaming with author Richard Moss. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every week with our good friends at Bitmap Books. Now, something that's going to be reprinted very soon, their biggest, most ambitious project to date, a guide to Japanese role-playing games. At 652 pages and 370,000 words, if you're a fan of that genre, this is a must-read. Reprints are June, October, and you can sign up right now and check out the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 340, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast that each and every Friday celebrates the world of classic video games. Keeping you up to date on all the developments that are happening on old school systems, new hardware that's coming out, new games that are being made for classic consoles. And we bring you a veteran of the industry or just someone who's been ingrained and really studied the history of gaming and technology on each week's show. And today we're going to be celebrating shareware, which is probably a word that is not really part of most people's vocabulary much anymore. It's definitely a phrase that died out at the end of the 90s. But shareware, my God, that was everywhere, wasn't it, in the 80s, early 90s, and so many classic franchises came out of that, including obviously games like Doom started as shareware titles. Yeah, it was it was really interesting. Like I used to play public domain games and uh, there were a lot of PD games around, but shareware always seemed to be a bit higher quality, especially when uh, companies like id Software, you know, started using the shareware model and then it actually grew for like, you know, Wolfenstein 3D, there was uh, Doom and then Quake, but also... Like, there were a few really cool shareware titles. Do you guys remember Elastomania? Ah, oh, I've not heard of that uh, one. Elastomania was like a bike one where you were side on. It, it, the modern form of it is Trials HD. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, that started on shareware as well as Jazz oh, Jackrabbit as well. Yeah. Um, there were quite a few wicked titles. Scorched Earth as well, which mm-hmm. uh, yeah. later became the kind of Worms titles. <laughs> you know, uh and even Commander Keen. So I, I think it was really good, especially in that kind of computer world. You know, there wasn't a many shareware console uh, games, <laughs> were there? But uh, around the computer world, it was a, it was kind of like the, the indie games world at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's really what it was, I guess, wasn't it? And it's what we call indie games today. And obviously, you know, Apogee software like Scott Miller, who we've had on the podcast before, he was a massive supporter of shareware and really kind of invented that kind of gaming model. Because I remember getting stuff like um, you'd often get games that maybe you could buy in your local computer store. You might get a floppy disk containing maybe two or three levels of a game. Yeah. And then if you wanted the full game, you know, today you'd call it unlocking it, but you'd have to send off like a, a postal order, get your mum to write one. 
go to the post office, you know, put it in the, put it in the mail. Or you, and then, or you could salotape some coins to a, a postcard, <laughs> which was if you're one brave. way that we would do it and, and send that across. Yeah, then they'd send you a disc bag containing the full game. So that's kind of the shareware model, wasn't it? It's kind of what we call like trialware today. Although I do remember some shareware titles where you would actually get the full game and they just said, if you like what I've done, then you can register and we'll give you like, you know, a, a personalised copy of it or you'll get a mention in the credits, that kind of thing. So a bit kind of like Patreon is today, I guess, you know, like supporting a project. And it definitely was, I mean, part of that world you mentioned, public domain, because I remember reading through like Amiga magazines and you'd always see those adverts in there from public domain libraries yeah. who would sell like, you know, what we call freeware, licenseware and shareware, you know, the, the, the trial versions of shareware products. And God, they used to sell hundreds of them. I mean, that was definitely, particularly here in the UK, a big business model back in the early 90s. I mean, even companies like Team 17, that started, didn't it, as a public domain house? Yeah, that was 17-bit software. Like, um, yeah. there were PD houses around, and there were also shareware houses and huge shareware collections as well, which was a... Uh, it's kind of been replaced now by, like, well, it's demo discs later on. And then, uh, you know, indie games and stuff like subscription models and stuff like that. But... I think it was a really good way of kind of filling the gap, especially unlike systems like the Mac where, you know, they'd really taken their eye off the ball when it came to gaming and uh, there was a demand for it. So, uh, you know, these shareware companies came in and uh, filled it up. And as the invention of CD-ROM came out and the internet, um, the collections grew and grew and grew yeah. <laughs> uh, to the point that, you know, you could just live off shareware at one point. And I remember getting those kind of public domain and shareware compilation CD-ROMs that would have like, you know, six, 700 discs all kind of archived on there and you'd unarchive them to a floppy. Simpsons and some... uh, music and slideshows and stuff like that. Yeah, well, that was one thing. I mean, you know, in terms of copyright, that didn't really exist. It was a bit the Wild West, wasn't it? All those kind of you know, ripped off music sample discs and that kind of yeah. thing. But also I remember some really high quality shareware games. I mean, you know, I was an Amiga user back then, so they're kind of the ones that spring to mind for me. I mean, do you remember... There's a game on the Amiga called Mega Ball. I don't, I don't remember that one, though. No. That was like an Arkanoid clone, but like, you know, Arkanoid, as you always wished it would be. It had so many, so much variety of gameplay. And then there's stuff like Deluxe Pac-Man and Deluxe Gallagher that were like public domain and shareware games. And some of these were, you know, some of the best versions of those games on the platform. So often you'd get, you know, homemade software that would approach the quality of something you could buy in a shop. So there definitely were, you know, some really high quality stuff that came out of the shareware scene. And today we're going to be talking to author Richard Moss, who has actually just done a new book celebrating shareware heroes. Now, I've gone through this book. It's like, it's probably the most in-depth book and look at the shareware scene I've ever seen. And he's been studying it and talking to so many of the people involved. So he's going to join us to uh, reminisce on shareware and uh, give us a bit of background on kind of where it came from as well and some of the highlights of the shareware scene. So if you've got memories of that era, you're really going to enjoy this interview. Something that doesn't get spoken about enough, I think, these days. Yeah. So we're going to be celebrating shareware with our guest, Richard Moss. He'll be on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, of course, we've got lots of news stories to get into in just a minute. I mean, at the time this show comes out, we'll, uh, we'll be on a plane on the way to Norway for Retro Mesa, where we're going to be on stage this weekend, hosting a few panels and taking in the atmosphere. So um, if you're coming along this weekend, very nice to see you there. Hopefully we'll get a chance to say hi. And I know we've been watching a few videos like we always do on YouTube. You just wanted to mention this from uh, someone else that we've had on the podcast before. Uh, this is The Gebs, who's actually done a video detailing... 
and giving a little tour of an 80s video store this is, that's opened pretty close to us, actually. Yeah, this is in Alfreton. Um, it's called the uh, 80s Video Shop, and um, it's an actual video shop, like uh, like Blockbuster or like one of these old independent video shops, and you can go there and rent VHS videotapes. And I think that's insane. We've got to go there and, like, you know, take a video there. You've also got to take your little girl uh, if if she, like, kind of can realise what a VHS is and stuff <laughs> like that. And, try try and, and explain to her, well, this is what daddy used to do when he was yeah, um, I really want to check it out because of my... Well, my dad actually lives right next to the shop, so I need to go visit him and go into the shop and, you know, maybe rent, like, Lost Boys or Fright Night or something like that. But, yeah, give her, give her that experience of just going in and just, like, looking yeah. at the movies. Even if she's little, she'll probably be like, wow, you know, because yeah, it, exactly. it was such kind of fun and uh, it reminds me of that old game shop and old video style. So check it out at uh, 80svideo.co.uk and uh, check out the video from the Gabs. I love they're actually renting VHS tapes mm. in 2022. I wonder, I'm... I don't know if I know anyone else who's got a VHS player apart from me. I've got one. But obviously, it, it, well, there you go. Maybe it, there's enough of a business model, you know, between me and you, Joe, to, to keep just the shop going, maybe. Just keep maybe, it maybe going. Maybe I need to sell one so, like, you get a VHS player with your rental. <laughs> no. uh, you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if that's something they do. I wouldn't be surprised if they've got loads of VHS players in the Stacks back room or something. Yeah. yeah, that'd be cool. You know what? It's really weird because I, my mum and dad moved house about five years ago and I went there and kind of cleaned all my stuff out. And I had a load of VHS tapes in the attic from when I was a kid and a teenager. And I threw them all in the bin. So I didn't have a video player. And I was like, oh, I'm never going to watch it. Why would, I, why would I choose to watch it in 4.3 on a crinkly cassette ta- uh, videotape instead of watching it in 4K on my modern TV? But then my uncle gave me a video player because he wanted me to do some transfers for him of old stuff. And then I kind of got the itch and I bought a few, like, you know, stuff like Robocop. Oh, and yeah. critters. I bought those off eBay for like two or three quid. Then started buying, like I always do, the, the tapes I threw out, buying some <laughs> of my favourite ones back off eBay again. So there is something which I never thought I'd say because I like vinyl because vinyl is very analogue and it's high quality. But stuff like cassette tapes and videotapes, when they were the mainstream media, I hated them and couldn't wait to get off them. I didn't think I'd ever get nostalgic for I'll them. I'll tell you what, I, I used to have one videotape, which was uh, Disney's Robin Hood, the old one. And oh, yeah. I used to play that constantly when I was a kid. Like that was like my companion or my teddy bear or something. And I really just miss having that uh, like VHS, you know. You know what as well? I love with videotapes. You can uh, you can kind of tell the bits of the movie that people kind of rewound quite a bit. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Where it starts to like wobble. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so uh yeah it's weird the things we get nostalgic for though I, I never in a million years dreamed that i'd ever get nostalgic for vhs tapes but turns out we're not the only one of actual vhs video stores are popping up again on the high street which is just insane so if you want to check this place out it's in uh, alfreton in derbyshire uh, here in the uk and we'll put a link to it and uh, geb's video as well in our show notes at the retrohour.com. Right, then let's get into this week's news stories. And uh, this is quite cool to see. A game that I loved as a kid is that coming back, not for the first time, because there have been a few remakes, um, infamously the awful 2008 reboot of this, which we'll just forget about. Uh, this is Alone in the Dark that is coming back. Yeah, I'm uh, quite excited for this. A friend of mine sent me this uh, about two or three days ago. And he was like, move over Resident Evil, Alone in the Dark's back. And I was like, oh, God, like sour taste in my mouth from the 2008 reboot, which 
wasn't that long after kind of like the original kind of games ended because they ended in around 2001. The original, they say the original trilogy they refer it to, but if you actually go and look, I think there was about six of them. Um, yeah, they spaced out quite a bit, weren't they? Yeah, they were kind of spaced out from like 92 to 2001. Then you got the 2008 reboot, but we're now getting a reboot this year. Just well, simply called it Lone in the Dark for uh, PS4 and PS5. But it, it's a bit of an odd one because it, it's doesn't say it's a reboot or a remake. It says you'll experience a completely original story, but it does incorporate the characters, places, and themes from the original 90s games. No prior knowledge to the original titles is, is required to enjoy the game and the story. Um, and fans of the series will feel, will find themselves like at home in a familiar space. So mm. I guess they're not just trying to remake it or anything. They're just making... I guess it is a remake with that description, but it doesn't matter if you've not played the originals, if that makes sense. It's not a remaster, though, is it? No, it's not, it's not, it's not a remaster. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this game, but it looks to me, it really looks like The Evil Within, that over-the-shoulder kind of noir kind of style to it, 1920s style. That classic kind of like, I say classic, it's that new kind of style of survival horror, the over-the-shoulder third-person mm. shooter with puzzles and it's dark and you've got your torch and stuff, but... Obviously, that's the kind of that's like my favorite genre of gaming. So I'm I'm really hoping this is really good. What do you guys think of it? I think um, Alone in the Dark was a really kind of groundbreaking title. I, oh, I didn't yeah. play it much myself. I've seen like footage of it and people playing it, but um, you know, Guinness Book of Records actually awarded it the first ever 3D uh, horror survival game. So it's totally mm-hmm. up your street. And uh, mm-hmm. it was like I remember seeing it on the on the 3DO, and it was even out for the. Uh, FM Towns and uh, MS DOS early on, so it was it was a real groundbreaking title. So I think it's good that they're revisit revisiting it. By but by the sounds of it, there were some uh, bad revisits that are going to happen yeah. before. Yeah, yeah. The the as Dan mentioned, the two thousand and eight one was just like a glitchy mess of a game with a mess of a story and stuff. But you know, I've got I like, played that for about twenty minutes yeah, and turned it off. I, I really tried to get into it when it came out, but um. No, I'm I'm looking forward to this one. Um, I've got, I think I've got, yeah, I've got Alone in the Dark two and the new Nightmare one, which was like the PlayStation one, one which played just like Resident Evil, or you could say Resident Evil just played like Alone in the Dark. But um, you're a big fan of uh, Jack in the Dark, aren't you, Dan? Yeah, that's my <laughs> Halloween go-to yeah. game, Jack in the Dark, <laughs> which was like an in-between game, wasn't it, for Alone in the Dark? Yeah, it was just a short little demo, really. Mm. Um, I think it was between one and two, wasn't yeah. it? Um, 94, I've got a feeling it came out. Um, but yeah, that, that to me is just, I, I love the atmosphere of that game. Although, I've got to say, I have gone back to playing the original Alone in the Dark game again in the last couple of years. And again, I mean, rather like Ravi said, that was kind of the start of the 3D survival horror genre. I mean, you know, predated Resident Evil mm-hmm. by a couple of years. But those tank controls, God, it's like <laughs> trying to get to grips with them again. They're very I, janky. I, I've not actually played the original myself. I've watched a lot of playthroughs and stuff, but it mm. it, it looks slow. Like there's tank it controls is. and then there's like walking through mud tank controls. <laughs> like kind of the loading enemy, between like, uh, the loading between scenes as well. Um, yeah it is quite yeah. long and stuff but you know it's it's one of the pioneering ones isn't it so oh yeah it's the first time really yeah I mean, 1992 and i remember i first saw that when they demoed it on bad influence and i remember mm. seeing it and i was like i'd never seen anything like that before it, you know it's got those very early rudimentary polygon 3d graphics you know everything's triangular 
But yeah, it was just the fact you could you could actually explore this world in three dimensions and the combat system. You know, you get that first bit where the the monster jumps through the window mm. in the initial room. I, last time I played it, I think it took me about half an hour to get past him. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's definitely though you know a game of its time and a game that's got a lot of strong memories for people and. Like you said, the series continued. You know, I remember there's one of the Dreamcast, wasn't there? I remember playing yeah, New Evil or something. That's a new nightmare. That yeah, so new nightmare. That was two thousand and one. Yeah, last one I played yeah. properly. Yeah, that that I think was the last kind of good one, if you will. Mm. Um, and that that I, I want to say that one was a reboot. I could be wrong. I'm not too familiar with the story, but that one I, is one of those ones I keep meaning to play because obviously I'm a massive fan of like the PS1 era of survival horror, Resident Evil, and Silent Hill, and stuff like that. So. That's one I need to revisit. Like you say, it came out on Dreamcast, PS1, etc. cetera. Um, and that one's got pretty good reviews. You know, a lot of sevens. Mm. And yeah, I played it a bit, yeah. yeah. I was quite quite impressed with it. Um, but, you know, again, I think Alone in the Dark just been a legendary franchise mm. that really deserves better treatment than it got in 2008. So I think yeah. for fans, hopefully this one will be a lot better and we can just kind of forget that ever happened. Yeah. And, uh, this will be the official sequel. So yeah. uh, have we got a release date on this end? You know, um, coming out? No release date at the moment, as it stands. I think it just says it's coming this year. Um, it's coming from a developer called Pieces, who, I hate to say this, I've been on their website and their kind of like back catalogue of games look like mobile games, to right. be perfectly honest. Titan Quest Atlantis, Titan Quest Ragnarok, Magicka 2. These these all look like kind of like iOS, you know, games. I could be wrong. I could be completely wrong. I, just, I hope it's in good hands. You know, I hope that IP has been handed to a good developer, but the trailer looks pretty good. It looks pretty triple A. You know, I don't think it's going to be a, a cheap, you know, like shareware, not shareware, um, shovelware game. I think, you know, they're, they're going to give it the love that it needs, but it just says that it's, it's, you know, in production at the moment and we should get it this year, but I'm fairly certain I've not seen anything at this point about it being on Xbox or PC. It just says PS4 and PS5 at the moment. If they don't get it out for Halloween, they're missing a trick. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so nice to have the granddaddy of uh, survival horror games back, though. So uh, nice to see you learning the dot making a return. Now, this is quite bizarre. Obviously, Pac-Man has kind of been on everything. You know, there's Pac-Man cereal. I remember being around. There's a Pac-Man cartoon back in the day. There's a song, Pac-Man Fever. Pac-Man there is. Fever. Actually, the guy that made that on the show, yeah, didn't we? we? Did. One, yeah, we one did. Stage, years <laughs> back, yeah. But what about this? Pac-Man being turned into a live action movie. I don't know what to say about this. Like, I just feel like they're jumping on the hype train. Like, obviously, Sonic, really successful. Really pleased with Sonic. Did great. Obviously, it's a children's film and stuff. And now we've got the Mario film coming out. The live-action Mario film coming out later this year. Um, So, apparently, (laughs) Pac-Man is now in development. Um, A collaboration between Bandai Namco, who obviously own uh, Pac-Man, and Wayfarer Studios. Um, and we have got a producer, Justin Baldoni and Man- Manu Gargi. I'm really sorry if I've completely ruined ruined those names, um, mm. connected to it. Um, and then also in association with Lightbeam Entertainment. So not, none of these produ- production companies and stuff I've heard of personally, but no, they could be massive. They could be the people who made the Sonic games for all I know, uh, the Sonic films. But that is all we've got so far. And that the... A script writer has been given go write a script. He um, is the uh, most <laughs> iconic person in in well character in video yeah. games uh, history, and uh, you know there was an eighties eighties animation as well, um, mm. yeah. which was like a Pac Man animated series. Uh, yeah, I, 
I think it's a interesting concept. He's cute as well. I've always found Pac-Man really cute. And I do remember they had like, you know, between the Pac-Man games, they had these little pack kind of intros and they had his whole family in there as well. So he's yeah. he's got like a, a history and a, a legacy and a storyline. Um, yeah. I wonder how much they'll stick to the arcade storyline or kind of veer off. There's not much of a story yeah. really, is there? It's just, yeah. <laughs> it runs around the main. I wonder if the film's yeah. just like, there's no story, it's just a game. Like, footage you of could the game, get in like. an argument with Miss Pac-Man and there could be a... <laughs> I don't know. There could be, but I just, I don't know where they're going to go with it. So I'm just reading a little bit more about it. So apparently there, were, there has been a pitch, a pitch meeting, um, and the original idea comes from somebody called Chuck Williams. And the script has been wrote off his original idea, but we've not been given what that is. And there's no real discussion whether Pac-Man is going to be like a human character or he's going to be Pac-Man oh, as oh, we know what it. What would his flesh be like? God, and his eyes. Like, <laughs> if he's a human, that would be really weird. Jaundice. <laughs> yeah, Pac-Man has got jaundice and needs a kidney transplant in a world. <laughs> well, I'm looking here, though, because live action, I've just Googled the definition of live action movie, and it says that's a form of cinema that uses photography instead of instead of animation yeah. so if they're saying it's a live action movie that would mean actors. maybe stop yeah. motion like <laughs> yeah be scary as hell one man eats too many pills is now being chased <laughs> by a ghost <laughs> yeah maybe he's a raver pac-man who knows yeah maybe maybe i just i just can't see it like the sonic films they made it work i'm, gu- I'm guessing they're gonna make the mario film work you know the original mario film maybe didn't work but that worked for you, Jimmy. Yeah, it did. I thought no <laughs> I just matter, don't see where they're going to go with it. No matter how cheesy, Pixels was kind of a good little fun film. And that had a good representation of Pac-Man because... But he had yeah, they no played per- the game, didn't they? He had no personality. It was just like literally eat pills. And uh, there's that one scene where, you know, Pac-Man's creator actually comes up to him and he's like, you're my son. And then he bites yeah. his arm off. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But then in this article on, on movieweb.com that I put in the show notes, they've depicted this live-action Pac-Man as being a, a guy wearing a yellow hoodie with yellow eyes. Yeah, he looks like he's like a man on the edge kind of yeah. thing. Like, he's, yellow he's too thin. He's too thin. It'd be hilarious if that's what it was in the film, wouldn't it? That was just yeah, a guy wearing a yellow hoodie. Yeah, really low budget or something. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll keep our ears to the ground with that one and our eyes peeled. I just I don't see where it's going to go. Maybe I said that about Sonic when that was announced. Yeah, well, it gets to a stage, doesn't it, where, like you said, you know, it's kind of like what happened with the video game crash in North America in the 80s, you know. So many just kind of pile on, like, oh, now it seems like, oh, let's make live-action video to game movies. Fair, though, yeah, I, love them. Like, I, I can see Pac-Man more than I could see Tetris, the movie, which was one that mm. was uh, banded around a few years ago. That one, yeah. I was like... Missile Command, the movie as well, yeah. which actually could make a good movie, but... Yeah, so we'll keep Battle- an eye on that. I was going to say, don't forget Battleship, but that was... Well, they've game. done Rampage as well, haven't they? So. <laughs> oh, they did. I've not even seen that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah with The did. Rock Johnson. The Rock? The Dwayne The Rock Johnson is Pac-Man. <laughs> well, another game that's obviously been turned into a movie, um, Doom. I mean, that's yeah, everywhere, isn't it? You know, you can play Doom on anything. You can watch it on anything. And this is quite bizarre, though. Doom, you thought you'd seen it all, running on a pregnancy test in a fridge and a toaster. You can now play it. On a tractor, literally, actually. Yeah, so this is this is more serious than it seems. So, um, famous, I, I, I know about tractors, you see, and I know about the countryside. <laughs> we need to change this podcast into like a gardening or tractor-based kind of podcast. You've been but, trying um, to do that for years. <laughs> yeah. so, so John Deere created these tractors, um, which have a system on there. And um, 
it requires subscription. So these are not like your old tractors, you know. These are modern ones with huge interfaces and you sit in like an air-conditioned booth and uh, you've got all your computers around you and you're doing massive industrial stuff. Now, what happened was they'd actually locked in the software for the tractors um, and you had to kind of subscribe. And there was a whole frustration within the uh, hacking community like we have with you know mini consoles where they have to be jailbroken you know and uh, you're kind of reliant on a system and uh, they had to break out of this because people had bought these tractors and they were like wait I need to I need to join this service or I need to pay John Deere to actually use the machine that I physically bought so within the hacking community um, there's been a effort to kind of jailbreak these and before it was using russian software um which was the only way to kind of get your tractor repaired and stuff like that uh yourself now defcon is the big security conference in las vegas where hackers kind of play around with stuff they and a lot of the times it's companies taking stuff along and saying can you like hack this voting machines was a famous one where they had a mm. kids recently playing and hacking voting machines now, there's an effort to actually hack the uh, tractors, and uh, that started to happen with these digital locks that are on there and uh, breaking them. And once they've been breaking, what are you going to do? You're going to put Doom <laughs> on Doom. it. <laughs> yeah, so I find it's really interesting because this is all actually about the right to repair movement, and uh, that's happening within the farming industry, but it's also happening within technology as well and stuff getting locked down and... DRM in games and stuff like this. Well, that's kind of everywhere now as well. I remember hearing a story that, you know, I think it was BMW who <laughs> you've got to pay like a, an annual license in some of their cars to use the heated seats that are in there. Yeah, or like Otherwise they Teslas don't you need to upgrade to like, you know, get certain functions or unlock some extra speed and stuff like that. I and mean, there is that argument that, you know, which I, I quite believe, which is that I have bought this equipment. I should be able to do what I want with it. And uh, I think there's a lot of people in the hacker world that are kind of like, yeah, I want to, and I want to run Doom on it. So <laughs> I'm going to do that. And I'm <laughs> going to prove it. And uh, it's by a group called Sick Codes that have actually done this. And interestingly, the mod that they're running on there is uh, driving a tractor <laughs> in the Doom world by the looks of it. I think I might be slightly concerned, though, about farmers driving these massive tractors around their field and being a bit distracted by playing Doom on their display and not looking where they're going. As long as you're not in the field, Dan, then you should be okay. Yeah, keep your eyes on the, the crops or whatever it is. So uh, very cool. I mean, I imagine these are probably just like Linux machines, aren't they, like most of them are? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a modern computer basically built on there, but it's all locked in with this technology and uh, kind of breaking it is uh, it's a, it's a challenge for the hackers and... Uh, and I'm kind of glad that they're there to challenge these kind of things. So if you want to play Doom on your tractor, it is uh, now playable. So I'll, I'll put that video in the article in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, lots of other stories to get through before our interview with Richard Moss talking about shareware gaming. Going to talk about this new 8-bit console that you build yourself called the Game Tank and a brand new Dreamcast shoot 'em up as well. Before we do that, though, just a quick reminder that the reason that we can bring you the Retro Out podcast each and every Friday, and that, you know, we haven't missed a show in like nearly seven years now that we've done this, 340 episodes in, and that is thanks to 
your incredible support. Now, I'm talking about the people who find it in their hearts to support the Retro Hour on Patreon. Now, we do have a Patreon that we run, and we give you some uh, nice little perks for helping us keep the lights on, don't we? Yeah, I like I like to think we give quite a few. So uh, we do we do sometimes release the episode early to our Patreons. Um, we give it ad free as well. Um, we have got some exclusive content in our episodes as well. We usually give about an extra one or two news stories in the patron version of the episode rather than having adverts in there to keep it around the same length. Um, our second tier members do get access to our second podcast, which is the uh, the Retro Hour After Hours, um, which is, you know, a little bit more kind of like our opinion on things and us playing some games and we go through the retro years where we talk about like highlights of some retro gaming years, you know, like 1989. And, you know, we, we did a whole set of like 98 to like 2005, which was, you know, kind of covered the fifth and sixth generation, which was really cool. Um, was that 26 episodes. Yeah, we've got like 26 yeah, episodes, which is crazy just to go show how long we've been doing that. We do one at the end of the month, every, every last Sunday of the month we record it. And after that, we then usually do our, uh, our hangout with our Patreons where anybody who's a Patreon... It's completely welcome and it's kind of like our virtual chat room, virtual pub, where we all kind of have a drink and we all get together. And, you know, some of them have been really brilliant. We've, you know, had up to 30 people on some of them, which has been absolutely amazing. And, you know, people don't have to join in. Some people just like to come and watch or have the camera off and just listen. But we kind of end up talking about anything and everything, not just retro Mm. games and retro tech, just retro films, horror films, technology, phones and stuff like that. It, It really is just like hanging out with friends. And uh, we do that on the last Sunday of every month as well. Um, but, you know, it, it really does come down to the fact that people are supporting us so we can carry on doing what we love and hopefully people love it in return. Yeah, and it's it's like a little community as well. Like mm. uh, we've got our own Discord channel that uh, gets unlocked if you're in Patreon. And uh, we mentioned that we're going to Norway and loads of patrons have been like, yeah, we're going to come down and meet you and stuff. So it's, it's really nice to have that kind of community vibe and then... Uh, you know, meet and chat with people on this kind of patrons meetup and then be like, oh, hi, you know, <laughs> meet them in real life and stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's really good and it, it does help support the show massively. Yeah, so if you'd like to join our incredible Patreon community, you know, we're always very welcoming of new members. Um, all the details are at theretrohour.com. And for backing us on Patreon, you will find your place in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming. And I'll let you guys do the two new ones that we've got this week. Hall of Fame. A massive thank you to Jake Evans and Albert Dunberg, who both backed us on Patreon. We hugely appreciate your support. And if you'd like to join them, all the details to get onto our Patreon and join the community are at theretrohour.com. Right, let's talk about this, a new console that you build yourself. Tell us about the Game Tank, Ravi. Yes, so there's a lot of consoles that have been coming out, uh, new mini consoles and stuff that are a bit FPGA-based. This is totally different. This is about the real hardware. And, uh, you know, it's a console that you kind of build and create yourself with the uh, 6502-based uh, processor in there. Now, it's called the Games Tank. It's it's pretty awesome, actually, because they've constructed it with uh, dip chips. So this means you can actually get the components, you can put them in yourself, and hopefully there won't be, like, limited supplies of the certain ones, Um which, as we know in the world at the moment, um, mm. it's, it's quite hard to get, but it means you're not sitting there soldering and stuff. You can just pop the chips in there. Now, it's an 8-bit games machine. It comes with um, controllers for, for like games pads, you know, DB, D9, 
which uh, is a kind of standard as well. And uh, it's it's really cool because it's all about building it, but also developing the games within it. So um, some of the games have been developed and they've got a hardware accurate emulator as well. So you can emulate the system if you want, develop it within that emulation environment, and then have it physically running on a cartridge on this new machine, uh, like flash the cartridge and then have it running on your own 8-bit console that you've built yourself, which is really cool. And I love this kind of way of doing it. Um, You know, it it seems really open to me. And like the more people that use it, the more games you're going to get. And I think being based on the 6502, that was, you know, the CPU that people will be familiar with that from the NES and the Commodore 64. And, you know, obviously it was a very popular CPU back in the 80s in particular. So I think, you know, having that familiarity in there is probably going to help people get a start with it. But it looks like there are, I mean, I'm looking through some of the links on on this article on Hackaday and people are doing some quite impressive stuff with it. I mean, there are some games that look pretty awesome. There's one in here, uh, a couple of years old from 2020, a nice little platformer called Cubicle Night. That actually looks really nice. I mean, it reminds me of probably nicer looking than most NES yeah, platform games. I, I, think, I think there's some nice ones done already. Like they've got a, a version of Tetris as well. And uh, of course, they've got Bad Apple as well, which is the yeah. uh, <laughs> kind of demo that's run on absolutely everything. Um, but yeah, I think the more people that use this, uh, the better. And um, I'm sure there's going to be like a community that kind of supports it and uh, people start going to building third-party cases because all the plans are available online you know you can print the case yourself you can print the the cartridges yourself as well if you've got a a a 3d printer and i'm looking at there's a a demo on youtube that i'll put in the show notes as well um, of a game on it called a cursed fiend um looks a bit like kind of a an rpg kind of game as well that looks really cool but i just think again it's you're going to get the satisfaction of making it yourself which I think, you know, you can make it into a bit of a project, can't you? Which I think is always cool. You get more of a satisfaction out of something you've actually put the the time and effort into building, I think, than just buying it off the shelf. Yeah, and if, you, if you've got really geeky children, this could be something that you could yeah. kind of do together and you could be like, this is how we used to do, you know, I was, video I was about game to say, it, it, it's, it's from an educational point of view, I think it's fantastic. Mm. You know, when, when we were kids in school and it was like, oh, go do this circuit breaker so this light bulb works or go take this plug apart really boring but if it's go 3d print your own 8-bit games console and build it and then program games for it i think it's absolutely fantastic and uh, i think you and me joe should go around ravi's house and we'll sit on his knee while he builds it (laughs) yeah yeah he might have to (laughs) break my legs guys (laughs) yeah yeah Uh, a sound card or like um uh audio co-processor can be added as well so like people are obviously making add-ons for it which means the system's just going to grow and expand. And uh, it's in the like prototype stage as well. So, um, you know, the final release of this could be absolutely beautiful. And I, and I think it's cool. It just seems like a small little project, but I thought, you know, it'd be good to get a little focus on it as opposed to all of these mini consoles or these ones that you get straight away and get it all up and running. And uh, I love the full open source nature of it as well. Yeah, definitely. So if you want to get involved in that, it's called the Retro Tank. Uh, let's put that article in our show notes as well. Now, I imagine you're pretty hyped about this. Um, I must admit, I do like a good Dreamcast shoot 'em up game. I've got the arcade stick on my Dreamcast. You know, it feels so satisfying playing shmups on that. Uh, but there is a new one coming out. This is called Metal Canary. 
Yeah, this looks really fun. It's uh, very in the vein of like, you know, Ikaruga and 1942 and Aero Fighters and stuff like that. But yeah, coming out on the Dreamcast and uh, I feel like we just, we're covering off Dreamcast games every week at the moment. Like there's more Dreamcast games coming out now than there was <laughs> like in the Dreamcast heyday. But yeah, Metal Canary, this um this looks really, really fun. It's been developed um, by a Portuguese game developer called Titan Games who are really enthusiastic about the Dreamcast and have done a couple of games already. Um, at the moment, it's a work in progress, um, but the trailer, it's, it's really got that kind of like Japanese anime kind of feel to it, which I really do think some really does kind of suit that genre of gaming. You know, they're really... All the, all the big ones on the Dreamcast yeah, were yeah, Japanese really, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm trying to think of some others uh, that came out in the Dreamcast. I can't think of any right now, but um, it says it's just due out this winter, um, so it doesn't look like they're doing it because a kickstart or anything like that. Um, it just looks like they're putting the game out and, uh, you know, you'll be able to buy it come winter, which I, th- I think is pretty cool. I-, I always love these, like, you know, new games on old hardware. I, you know, really, really enjoy them. And they always really push the system to its limit, you know. And then the Dreamcast, obviously, it, it, for, for what it is, is a powerful, powerful uh, system, sixth generation. But I always think these 2D kind of top-down games which come out on these systems that came out on Dreamcast and Sega Saturn and PS2 and stuff, they just they just look so beautiful. Obviously, everything kind of moved away from that 2D look, but when these 2D games do come out on that hardware, I, I just think they look absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it looks like, um, you know, they, they're going to create quite the complete package here because they've got, um, you know, the box art and, like, stuff like that, but they've also got, like, FMV intros and stuff between the uh shoot 'em up yeah scenes, they've got which... like little anime kind of like fmvs like you say in between it which i think as dan said just really really suit the dreamcast and that style of game you know graphically it kind of reminds me a bit you know the 2d kind of look like a, a higher neo geo yeah kind of game yeah 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 this wouldn't be alien to the neo geo at all i don't think yeah, so um, yeah, very cool to see new games of this genre coming out, and also something that we can get hold of over here. Because like I said a lot of those, you know, shoot web games on the Dreamcast were Japanese exclusives. I mean, I've managed to you know find a source of burning them thanks to the Dreamcast <laughs> easily defeated piracy protection. Well, um, um, it, yeah, it's cool. It does look cool, and I think a lot of games are coming out because of stuff like you know we have the Scorpion engine on the Amiga. I've I've read that this is using Titan IDE, which is kind of a a games engine for the Dreamcast as well. So hopefully stuff like this, uh, Titan's going to help spur on development and there's going to be a lot, lot more stuff in there. Um, you know, it, it, it also means that they can draw graphics on the VMU as well and stuff yeah, like cool. that, which uh, may add in some extra features and stuff. I can't wait to see the full release of this and uh, yeah, long live the Dreamcast. I'm sure Adam Korolik will have the first review. <laughs> For sure, Probably yeah. does anything Dreamcast. So uh, it's called Metal Canary. That's going to be at the end of this year. It says winter 2022. So uh, maybe some of you finding your Christmas stocking this year. Right next, we are going to get the history of shareware gaming with this week's special guest, author Richard Moss, is next on the Retro Out podcast. You're listening to the Retro Owl Podcast and it is time for our favourite part of the show when we welcome on this week's very special guest. And we had such a good time with our guest this week discussing his last book, The Secret History of Mac Gaming, at the back end of 2021. So we thought we'd invite him back on to talk all about his incredible new project, Celebrating Shareware Heroes. So let's welcome on author Richard Moss. Welcome back, Richard. How are you doing? Hey, it's great to be here again. I loved talking to you guys last time. 
Yeah, it was such fun last time. So we thought, I mean, shareware. An issue that I, I think, you know, Ravi and I, obviously we were of that era where we grew up with a lot of shareware titles as well, but really not something that gets discovered and talked about all that much anymore. So it's going to be really interesting to talk about some of these classic shareware titles and the scene in the early days as well, that obviously you go into detail in your new book that we'll talk about as well. But I mean, I imagine a lot of our audience are aware of what shareware is or have definitely heard of it. But for those that maybe haven't or are not all that familiar, give us a quick definition of what shareware is. So there there are a lot of different versions of the concept uh, and the book sort of gets into, like that's part of what the book's doing. It's getting into how this concept evolved and the different variations and ideas people had of what shareware could mean. But the basic idea is you give away the software or the game for free and you ask people if you like it or you want to keep using it to pay. Give us, give me some money, give me 10 bucks, 20 bucks, whatever. They, they'd usually declare a, a, a number that they'd like you to pay. It's not all that different to something like Patreon if you, if you vary it, if you compare it to the way things work today. Yeah, so there were other forms of uh, non-commercial software i always remember pd in public domain like getting the pd discs and stuff like that um what what were the differences pd was often used as a catch-all that included shareware but if you're if you're trying to get technical about it public domain software is uh free software that uh, the author may retain uh, ownership over the the code that they wrote but they release the thing into the public domain do with it what you like I don't expect any money from you. You can share it around. You can play it, whatever you want to do. Whereas shareware, uh, people that it's still a it's still a paid product. They they like you to give money, uh, so they're they're very much related to each other, but they're a bit different. PD is basically free. Shareware is kind of free. So, I remember yeah, there were even some weird ones. Like I remember there was a. I remember seeing pizzaware and cakeware and boozeware, where you know where donators yeah. would um, buy an author a cake or a beer or a pizza. I mean, any other kind of weird examples like that that you've come across? Uh, beerware is always one that that I found really amusing, and I think I told the story last time I was on of Continuum, a beerware Mac game uh, where the the authors did it as a joke, but they ended up getting several thousand dollars worth of beer sent to them. <laughs> There's also some. Some semi-serious stuff like uh, I, I want you to donate some money to a cause. Uh, donationware or reliefware is what one person did, uh, where they they asked people to pay him the money, but then he supposedly donated all the money to a local charity. Uh, it was to help uh, homelessness, I think. You know, there was that letter from Bill Gates years ago that was in the Homebrew Computer Club, and uh, it was kind of about pirating his his software was was there like an expectation for software to be free in the early days and shared around yeah it it goes right back to the roots of computing and this is something that I, I talk about at the start of the book back in the 1950s 1960s most of the 1970s computers cost millions of dollars you, you didn't have home computers yet and uh, you started to get like kit computers that you had to assemble but they didn't. They were so basic because they were they were just some blinking lights. So most computer users were people at universities or banks or other things around the world, and they were operating these really really expensive systems. And so you'd be crazy to charge money for the software when 
you've already charged a million plus dollars for the system. So the people creating the software, they they just wanted to share ideas with each with each other. They they were all about advancing the the human the human race with technology. And this was written about at, at great length in the book Hackers by Stephen Levy, a really good book. The shift started around with Bill Gates, uh, with the beginning of Microsoft, where uh, now you had more people buying home computers, personal computers, and these are systems that cost $1,000, $2,000, up to $10,000 even sometimes. That They're much more affordable, and there are companies starting up trying to make software for these things, and they want to get compensated for their time, for their effort, their skill. And so Bill Gates sort of start, helped kick off a revolution in software costing money. Uh, which was a very novel concept at the time. So it must have been tough with, uh, you know, Bill Gates putting that letter out to the Homebrew Computer Club because uh, there was a lot of philosophy around that time that, you know, you'd buy the machines and software would be free. Is is this kind of where the uh, shareware movement spawned from? Yeah, to to an extent it did. I don't know how much, how steeped in the in the university culture of computing, the the founders of Shareware were um, uh, certainly one of them, uh, Andrew Flugerman. He he was largely an outsider. He actually didn't know anything about computers, and uh, getting into and interested in computers is part of how he ended up uh, inventing Shareware, being one of the inventors of Shareware. But the the these three people, there were three different people who invented Shareware almost at the same time. They all had absorbed the ideals of uh, that old world of computing. They, in essence, all wanted to share their ideas. They wanted to to make software and share it with the world. And if they made some money along the way, then that's great. That their idea was to to experiment and and try this this model of I put my software out to to anyone to enjoy. But maybe I can make money at the same time because then we get the best of both worlds. Uh, everyone wins that way. We get software gets to be uh, unshackled from things like DRM and uh, big price tags, but the author gets compensated for their work. And so the author then is encouraged to keep improving and keep making more stuff. Well, you mentioned Andrew Flugelman, and obviously, you know, he was a huge figure in the early days of the shareware movement and a big part of your book as well. So tell us a bit more about Andrew and how he plays into the story and what he did. He was a writer and a book publisher. He was doing, he, he was running a small book imprint and he had always been interested in computers uh, since he'd first found out about them. And there, there were still these big hulking things that would take up a, a room and he watched with great interest as they got smaller and smaller. And he would he started going to the computer fairs in California and checking these things out. And then around 1980-81, whenever it was, the IBM PC came out. And when that came out, he thought, this is the computer for me. I'm going to get one of these. And he'd had this idea kicking around in his head to do a book about computers and how to use computers. And so he bought an IBM PC, and as he is learning how to use the computer, he's also writing a book to teach other people how to use a computer, because this is back in the days when anyone could teach people about computers while they, are, they themselves are learning. And in the process of 
learning to use the computer, he's learning basic programming because you, you needed to learn basic back in those days to do anything useful with a computer. And he's making little programs to help him with his work, little things for his business to, to manage different aspects of his life. And uh, one of these programs he decides is really good and he wants to share it with the world. So he comes up with this idea of freeware. And it's, it's kind of funny that he called it freeware and later we end up with this name shareware and freeware is something else. But that's because he trademarked it and no one else could use his name. And it's exactly the same idea as what we know as shareware. He, he put it out as something that anyone could use freely. You, you, you had the thing, you do what you want with it. But if you pay him this donation amount that he'd set, then you'll get phone support, you'll get free updates, you'll get a printed manual, I think, as well. These little basic things to, to make it worth your while and also to encourage him to keep improving the software. He called it an experiment in economics, and he stressed that it was not an exercise in altruism because it was, a, it was about making money, but it was not something that he cared whether he actually made money from. He wanted to test the waters and see what would happen. Well, I was wondering um, about the early BBS scene, like, uh, you know, distributing software and how important that was to shareware. Oh, it was critical. It was how shareware was, for the most part, how shareware was distributed at the very beginning. It, it posed a problem, of course, because most people couldn't access the BBS and that made it very a very limited audience that you could access with shareware. Uh, and that then led to the creation of these things called disk vendors. And we all know about the um, CD-ROM compilations that, that had a thousand shareware games on them in the 90s. But uh, on BBSs, that was, that was instrumental to the, the growth of shareware because people would log on to a BBS and, and download some little shareware program. And because the, the culture of BBS is sort of, they're, they're very connected, interconnected, and uh, about discovering and, and trying things, it fit really well with the idea of shareware. And uh, some new technologies came along. Um, that there was this thing, uh, fileid.diz, uh, that was invented in large part for BBSs to help the people running the BBSs, the, the system operators, to keep things organized, uh, but also to help the consumers who are downloading these programs to get a consistent description of what is in each program. And when they download the archive, that they they have a, a description that's been written by the author and not by some random person. Uh, it makes it much more consistent, much easier for them to understand what they're getting. And so, so BBSs were critical and they ended up uh, being a primary source of how shareware authors got word out to their fans as well. In, into the, if you get into the 90s, you had companies like Apogee and Epic getting home BBSs, like a homepage, but this is before the web. So they had a home BBS, which was the, the place that you could go to get the latest updates to their software and to uh, maybe even get support direct from the company if you didn't want to call up the 1-800 number or whatever it is that they had in the, in the uh, game documentation. And uh, smaller BBS operators would go there as well and download the stuff. And so this whole big, huge network developed around the home BBSs. There's this massive, giant support infrastructure that was critical to their businesses. 
well, obviously, you know, it's human nature really to want something for free. Um, and I imagine, especially then when, you know, you didn't, you couldn't just like register online and you actually, you had to send a postal order in the mail or something like that. What were kind of the incentives for people registering these titles then? That was sort of the eternal struggle of shareware is how to incentivize people to pay money because people found out very quickly that uh, if you just gave them something free, they're unlikely to pay for it. it goes back to Andrew Flugerman's idea of it's an experiment in economics, but not in altruism. Well, the people who are actually downloading the shareware, they don't think of it that way. They think, great, I got something free. I don't have to pay money for this. And that was particularly a problem with games because you play a game and you're done. Whereas you get uh, some bit of productivity software, the incentive could be right there in the fact that it's useful to you and you want to keep using it. And so you want to make sure you're on the latest version. You don't want bugs. You want to make sure you get all the latest features. So uh, one of the most common incentives in the business world for shareware was you'll get updates. You'll get the latest version. Other, other incentives would come and go. People tried all sorts of different things. Oh, we'll, we'll give you free phone support. You'll get uh, a direct line to the developer. So you can talk to them on their home phone. Uh, we'll... Uh, We'll send you a printed manual. Uh, we'll give you some uh, extra maps to, to this game. All sorts of different ideas were tried. And the one that actually ended up working most consistently for games was we'll give you more levels. So you, you're enjoying the game. Great. Let's give you more of the game. As simple as that. That, that, that was basically what the Apogee model was, which uh, id Software and Epic and, and Apogee slash 3D Realms followed. This episodic game structure, it was we'll give you a big chunk of the game, maybe a quarter or a third of the game, and that is the shareware part. And then if you want the rest of it, you'll give us money. Uh, so, so you had games like uh, there was this thing called uh, Capture the Flag, where it was a really popular game and the, the creator, uh, he wasn't sure exactly how to, to incentivize people to give him money. So he, he had extra game modes, multiplayer game modes that uh, you could get if you paid money, uh, which was a, a, a lot of people did that actually with their games. They, they'd make the single player free, but you got to pay for multiplayer or you get one multiplayer mode, but then if you want the other three modes, you pay the registration fee. They're sort of segmenting their audience like that. Well, you mentioned before about the struggle to get people to register and pay for it. I mean, there was, and you mentioned this in the book, famously an article in the San Francisco Examiner that was actually titled Nobody Pays for Shareware by <laughs> yep. John C. Dvorak. <laughs> Who, you know, John, John C. Dvorak's generally got a bit, always had a bit of a reputation for being a bit grumpy anyway. But I mean, did that kind of <laughs> shake confidence in the model then in the industry a bit? Well, yeah, uh, I, I don't know uh, to what extent that article itself was responsible for that because uh, it was sort of responding to a growing feeling among people, both developers and um, users of, of shareware, that there was no money in shareware, that nobody was paying for shareware. Well, because of a lot of things. Uh, one was that the barrier to entry to publish shareware software was so minuscule, you could make any bit of crap and put it out and ask for $10. And uh, 
the average person isn't going to necessarily know how to tell the difference between your bit of crap and this other thing that someone has spent six months developing and and it's really polished and it's as good as a professional program and that became a huge issue in shareware that was a huge stumbling block for for both developers and users it, it, it hurt the confidence of shareware and then you add to that the fact that it's not really easy in those days to pay for shareware nowadays we've got digital distribution all figured out we've got online stores it's super easy everyone's got like credit cards already hooked up to a bunch of different accounts you can in a few seconds buy something back then you would uh, put some cash in an envelope or you write a check back in the days when when everyone was using checks and i guess in america they still are but that's something else or you you'd pull out your credit card and and you'd get all nervous and talk on the phone to someone or uh, when you get by the time you get to the late 90s and people are starting to try doing online credit card payments and they're really nervous about the security so people felt like it's a real hassle to pay for shareware and this was true both for people in the same country as the developer this person might be in a might be living in a city that that's an hour's drive away from you but it's still a hassle to pay them. You can't, you can't just go to the store and buy it. That's a, a big stumbling block for you to have to do all this extra work to pay for the software. But then if you're, if you're international to them, like so you guys in the UK, you, you want to buy some American shareware or me in Australia, it would be such a nightmare figuring out, well, how am I going to pay for this? If you're lucky, there might have been a local distributor that you could go to, Apogee, were really good about this, putting uh, every single distributor they had around the world in their game, uh, on the game's uh, help screens. You get the, the phone number and mailing address of every distributor. But smaller authors, people who had just put something out by themselves, they couldn't do that at all. They, they were just this one random person living in a house in some city somewhere in the world. And the only way to pay them was you send them a check or you send them some cash. So if you're international, then you've got to like get a money order or you've got to exchange some currency. What a nightmare that is. Yeah, I, I really want to do my uh, John C. Dvorak impression. Uh, nobody pays for shareware. <laughs> there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, what were the earliest examples of uh, popular shareware then that really, really kind of uh, caught the public's attention? Well, the things that first caught the public's attention were the the things made by these three people who invented shareware. But uh, perhaps more interesting for for the show that that we're doing here, we're, we're talking about games. Is uh, early games that uh, that drew attention from shareware, uh, and there there was some. There's one that uh, was made by a guy called Alan Farmer called Willie the Worm. It was basically a clone of Donkey Kong, the arcade game but you controlled a a worm and it was really basic uh, like ascii modified ascii graphics so he he customized the character set to to give you a, like a worm thing and some other some other stuff uh, i forget off the top of my head what what sprites he came up with uh, and it was pretty much a, a straight clone of donkey kong other than that but he'd hand tuned it in assembly code to the uh, speed of an IBM PC junior, which I thought was funny because 
by the time he made he put that out, it's like eighty five or eighty six. Barely anyone would have been using a PC Junior. They would have been on faster computers. So on nearly every computer that ever ran the game, it ran too fast. And yet he <laughs> still made thousands of dollars from it. There was a, a Mac game that uh, was really cool. Uh, also put out in 1985 by a guy who sadly died just last month uh, called Al Evans. The game was Captain Magneto. Uh, it was a, a cool little adventure thing inspired by Ultima, but it was more adventure than RPG. And uh, his idea was, I want to make something that's like exploring the overworld in Ultima. So that, that top-down view rather than the first-person thing. And you can come across... Uh, monsters that are friendly they're not all out to get you so there's a there's a random chance that they'll actually want to help you and his game was really really popular in the mac community uh, for many years after that and he was one of the most successful early shareware authors i think he actually made five figures from the game there was some other cool things there was like a a shoot 'em up thing called flightmare which is really weird to explain it had two different viewpoints in it. You had a side view and a, a top view, I think. Yeah, side view and a top view. So you had these two different views that you had to you had to line up uh, your shots and, and the enemies in order to have a direct hit. They were trying to do some, some sort of 3D thing, but obviously the, graphics, the graphical power of a PC in 1984 was way too weak to actually pull that off. So they did the side view and the top view and you line them up and it's really, really confusing and awkward, but it's interesting to look back at. I mean, talking about the Mac, because I mean, generally until now, we've been kind of focusing on the the IBM PC compatible market. I mean, what was the shareware scene like on other platforms like the Macintosh, for example? On the Mac, it was really vibrant. At the beginning of, of the Mac's life, I, I think Mac people that they tended to be more connected to each other than people in the PC community. It's a, it's a quirk of the Mac is that they banded together more into these different users groups. And so they, they shared things more often. Uh, and you add to that, that the, the Mac was, was a really lovely machine to make stuff for because it, it was comparatively really high resolution graphics. It was like double the pixels just about in each direction on, on a PC. And uh, it was a lot more powerful than, than the PC of the day. And so there were a lot of people making cool shareware on the Mac and sharing it around. One of my favorites being a game called Glider, or there's, which is you fly a paper plane around the house. It's a puzzle game. Or there's Stunt Copter, which everyone who had a Mac pretty much in the 80s or the 90s would have played Stunt Copter, a cute little game where you drop a tiny little stick figure man from a helicopter and try and get him into a hay wagon that is just uh, left and right on the screen for, forever. It's just going back left to right off the screen and again and again and again. It keeps coming. If you, if you drop the man into the wagon five times, it goes faster and it keeps going faster and faster. But you can also drop the guy, drop your little man on the horse and there's like a <coughs> sound. And that that's kind of fun to do, uh, particularly if you're a little kid like I was at the time. So shareware was pretty big on the Mac and it got even bigger and more important in the 90s when the commercial side of Mac gaming died down. 
And so then you had the rise of companies like Ambrosia Software and Freeverse, which were the the max equivalent of Apogee and Epic. Uh, they were doing lots of really cool commercial caliber games that made them the most beloved company. People just they couldn't get enough of what these two these two studios were doing, and they were publishing games by different authors around the world. They weren't just making things in house. Then uh, it's also just Sorry. before you come in, it's also interesting to to look at other platforms. So shareware was big on the Mac, and shareware was big on the PC. Uh, There was a shareware scene on Atari ST and Amiga, but it never really took off. Uh, And and I think that's because they were primarily something in the UK and Europe uh, in their their audience and attitudes to shareware were a bit different there. I was going to mention on the Amiga because, um, you know, as you mentioned, there was lots of rubbish as well as really amazing stuff in the shareware scene and you needed people to compile this. And uh, Fred Fish was a a legend that I used to hear about when I was a kid because he'd uh, compile these great shareware discs. What what was his story? In essence, he was just a huge fan of the Amiga and he wanted to spread the spread that love around. He wanted more people to appreciate how great the Amiga was. And so he he started compiling these these discs of different programs and some of them were shareware the majority of things that he put on his discs, on his Fred Fish discs, were not shareware. They were uh, other kinds of P- other kinds of PD software. But uh, he had a, a just a, a massive influence on the Amiga scene, didn't he? he was uh, putting these discs out that were was shared all over the world and were the source of software for other PD libraries in many cases. And so he was compiling all these things and not really asking for much money. For, for doing it. He, he never did it professionally, I don't think. Um, he never had more than several hundred subscribers, and yet there were hundreds of thousands of copies of every disc that he made circulating in the world because he, he never really cared if you made copies of his discs and handed them on to someone else, as long as enough people were supporting him that he could keep doing what he did. Well, there were some very ambitious and, you know, fully featured programs that were made shareware. And I'm thinking of, like, you know, titles that were really commercial quality. For example, I mean, you talk about PC Write in your book as well. And, I mean, that was up there with any of the big word processes of the day, really, I guess, in terms of quality. Yeah, yeah. And that was that was one of the, the original shareware programs. And it's no surprise, really, that, that these three guys, uh, Andrew Flugerman, Bob Wallace, and Jim Knopf, or Jim Button, as he was also known, that they all became really famous and, and very, very successful. They all made millions of dollars with their, their shareware stuff. It wasn't just that they were first, it's that they were making things that were really, really good. That they, the PC Talk was a, a superb communications program, like a connection, modem connection, sending files and stuff. Um, PC Write was a brilliant word processor and uh, PC File was also really good. So, uh, as you mentioned, like uh, with Mac, shareware was kind of essential. Um, EduComp was one of the best Mac shareware business businesses out there. Um, well, what's the story with them? They were initially a little company doing uh, doing a bunch of different stuff. Uh, when they came across this guy called Robbie Bahat, who was uh, 
making shareware compilations for a local Mac users group in San Diego. He worked at a computer store and he was spending probably more time teaching people about computers and what they could do with them than he was uh, actually selling stuff. And so he started making these compilations to give to people at the store's computer classes and also to sell at the Mac users group meetings. And he got approached one day by the owner of Educomp saying that they wanted to start up a, a catalog, which was a, a this emerging thing, this idea of putting out shareware catalogs so people could order in one, two, three programs on a disc uh, from this from a company. Educomp then got really, really, really big. I'm not sure why how, how it is that they that they succeeded where uh, others didn't, but they were one of a few uh, shareware disc vendors that blew up big time, and they were for the most part focused on the Mac. They they cracked the code. They they had the money to to get nationwide and international distribution. I'm not sure exactly, but they did it well, and they ruffled a lot of feathers along the way because. Turns out some people who were making shareware didn't like having their stuff put into these compilations without their explicit permission. So to me, this always seemed kind of weird because wouldn't you want more people to have your program? Because the more people have your program, the greater the chance you'll get paid for it. But I think it's because they were charging money for these discs. So a lot of people wouldn't read the fine print. They wouldn't see that they're paying for something that's not com- not necessarily complete software. They wouldn't see that they are buying from a third party that has no connection to the creator of the software. And so then the software author would get really upset that somebody's making money from their program and it's not them. Yeah, we had that over here as well quite. Pu- yeah, I remember in the 90s, you know, public domain libraries became a big deal here in the UK and you'd read about them in various magazines and there'd often be the product listing and the price list as well um and i remember a lot of public domain authors in particular you know kind of complaining that they might charge like five pounds for you know what was just meant to be the cost of the media and the postage but obviously they were making a bit of profit on that to keep the business model going i guess i mean was that a bit controversial those kind of companies were making it a commercial business model and was that much of a thing in the u.s as well and other countries i don't think it was uh, as big outside of the UK and Europe, but it did exist to an extent. Um, and I, I thought it was very interesting researching the book to see how there were a couple of companies that tried to to figure out that problem in the UK. There was this concept of licenseware that was established by Budgie, uh, Budgie PD, one of the one of the groups uh, in the UK. They they thought maybe we can fix this problem of the software authors not actually making money from their from their PD software while the libraries are getting quote unquote rich from it. I, mean, I don't think anyone was actually getting rich from selling PD software, but people were making profits uh, that uh, ethically made maybe was a bit dubious. And so they came up with this idea they called licenseware, where you get your software published by this licenseware company. And that company would charge a fee to the PD library for the, the the sale of the product, and so a percentage of the money that uh, ch- that changes hands for the 
the PD disk would filter its way back to the author that way. And so then everyone got a slice of the money, however small it was. You might have only been earning 30p or something, but at least you're earning something. And did some shareware titles, uh, you know, become fully popular? Like uh, Doom is, uh, for example, one that got a commercial release afterwards, and uh, that would probably be due to the popularity of, of the shareware model that they thought, like, let's do this commercially. And I've noticed a lot online that um, titles like that are selling for really high prices as well because of the, the limited amount of uh, releases. Yeah, pretty close to everything that Apogee, id Software and Epic published would eventually get some kind of retail distribution. And that was largely down to them being nearly all popular games, but also just uh, diversifying the business models. They had a partnership with uh, a company that was doing retail distribution and as an extra bit of money, it's another revenue source. And so there were a lot of very successful, very popular shareware games. Doom is obviously the sort of headline title. Everyone knows about it. It being shareware was critical to its success. And id Software even had the the clever idea of encouraging uh, these uh, companies that were doing what's called rackware. So they'd put uh, a, they'd put a disc of the shareware edition in a retail store and charge $5, $10 for it, whatever. And they, they said to those companies, we don't care if you put this out without paying us. We don't want that money. We just want you to slap our, slap our logo somewhere in the box. Just put the thing out, sell it. We know people are going to fall in love with this game because Doom is revolutionary. Doom's going to change everything. Doom's going to blow people's minds and the money's going to come to us eventually. They are sure to play this shareware episode and go, I got to have the rest of it and give us money. And, and indeed people did. Doom was a massive, massive success long, even before it got that uh, retail version in 95. Um, Wolfenstein 3D had a retail episode as well. Commander Keen had a retail episode. These were id Software's prior games. Interestingly, uh, some of the most successful shareware games actually were not made by id Software or Apogee or Epic. There was a, a program called Pretty Good Solitaire released uh, initially in, I think, 94 or 95. As the name suggests, it's a solitaire game. It's a card game. And it started off pretty small, but it grew bigger and bigger. And, and the developer of that, Tom Warfield, he kept improving it and he kept putting out updated versions. And every year or two, he'd do a paid upgrade. And he made millions of dollars from this program. And he's still working on it today. It's still going. It's, it's still basically being sold under the shareware model. And uh, there were lots of little success stories like that, of, of things that didn't uh, filter out to the, the hardcore gamer audience. Um, games that, that hit a big, really, really big casual audience, this emerging casual audience of gamers. Uh, but that's probably the biggest one. Pretty good solitaire. Uh, another one that was really huge was Snood, uh, which was a, a puzzle bobble clone uh, with a difference. They, they took out the timer, which was a brilliant idea. As being an arcade game originally, you're under a lot of time pressure, but then they, they took out the, 
they took out that pressure and the game just found a whole new audience and it was massive. Well, famously, uh, as you mentioned, Scott Miller from Apogee was a huge supporter of Shareware as well. Um, why do you think he believed in it so much? Because it worked for him. He started out with Shareware because he couldn't get a deal to do things with uh, commercial publishers. He was making these text games initially back in the 1980s. He was making text games and no commercial publishers wanted text games for the most part. I mean, obviously Infocom were doing great stuff, but he wasn't at that level. They wanted things that were flashy. They wanted stuff that you could put into a magazine and people would be enticed to buy it based off one screenshot or something, or a screenshot on the back of the box or something. They wanted things that people would get excited about really quickly. And he wasn't doing things like that. And so he wasn't able to get any deals. And then he, he started making some stuff with disc magazines. Uh, these were ma- sort of magazines on a floppy disk. You could uh, buy a subscription to a disc magazine and every month you'd get a floppy disk with a bunch of software on it. And he made a bit of money doing that, but not a lot. And he thought, maybe I could try this shareware thing. He gave it a try. He put out his existing stuff as shareware using just the conventional models that other people were using of, uh, if you like it, pay me some money. He made a bit of money, made slightly more than he made from the the disc magazine, but it's he still thought maybe I can do better than this. And so he started asking around to lots of shareware authors, are you making any money? Uh, you're making a really good game. And almost every single one of them told them, told him, nah, we're not making any money. <laughs> you don't make money in shareware. But he didn't give up yet at that point. He, he's got a good sense for marketing and he had an idea. What if I just put out part of my next game free? So I'll make something that is specifically for the shareware model. And uh, that's when he came up with his Apogee model, where he, uh, he made one of his cross games. It's a, sort of a roguelike text game. He put out one episode of Cross as shareware and asked people to pay whatever amount it was for the other episodes. And it did really, really well. He started making so much money that he ended up being able to quit his day job. And he kept making deals with other other developers and putting their stuff out as, as shareware under the same model. And that was succeeding too. And so that's why he really believed in shareware for a long time and supported it. It's because it was working. Well, how did the introduction of CD-ROM change shareware? So I remember, you know, you, you could, for example, get entire public domain libraries on a single CD-ROM. I mean, we mentioned Fred Fish. Um, I remember having, you know, the, the entire fish disc compilation, like all seven, 800 discs on a single CD. So I imagine that in terms of distribution made things, you know, on a much bigger scale there. Yeah, it- it, it had a weird impact on the shareware scene. It, it commodified shareware to an extent where you, you suddenly had people just slapping in a, hundred, a thousand games or whatever onto a single CD-ROM because they, were the, they just wanted to fill the capacity. And these games, for the most part, they're really, really small. You know, if, if you imagine you have a one, one megabyte game, you have a 600 megabyte CD-ROM, well, then you can have 600 one megabyte games on there. That's, that's a lot of games. and someone then buys this CD for $15 or something and they just want to work their way through it, that could be a couple of years of their life and they don't pay any of these authors a single thing. 
I think I'm still working through those fish discs today, actually, for <laughs> 30 yeah. years later, I haven't got through them all yet. Exactly. And so that commodification of shareware was a problem for the authors. It, it, po- it presented opportunities as well. Uh, always, There are always opportunities with these things. There were some disc vendors who did very well out of selling large collections of, of shareware that uh, they had curated a bit more. Uh, and they developed a reputation for actually having decent stuff on their CDs. There are other ones who just thought, I'll make a quick buck, and they put out a couple of CD CDs with a generic name, like a, a thousand and one PC games, some stupid thing like that, and hope that people buy it. And eventually you had some shareware games that were big enough that they actually even needed a CD to ship out the full version of it. Well, saying that, like, how did the internet change shareware? Because I remember um, a lot of those CDs were available because, you know, downloading from the internet kind of took so long. So you had a a huge kind of database on all of these CDs. The internet opened the doors to to shareware distribution and and particularly that the web, the World Wide Web uh, really opened up the doors. Every year the web was getting bigger and bigger. More people were signing up getting themselves an internet connection. And one of the first things they do when they go online is they look for software. They, they look for something to do with their computer because everyone wants, wants a reason to use this expensive hunk of plastic on their desk, uh, particularly in the days when you're spending $2,000, $3,000 on, on your computer. And so they'd go to these websites that would basically be download farms for shareware and they'd have some some short reviews. Um, Two Cows was the biggest one, the most successful, most popular one. It had millions of hits every day, heaps and heaps of people going to Two Cows to download shareware and demos and other things. I know when I got the internet in 97, I, I spent a lot of time at cnetsdownload.com as well, just sort of browsing around, hoping to find some gem on there that my computer could run. And in addition to making it much easier to find to, to find stuff to get. And uh, for shareware authors, it's opening up this huge audience of people that you couldn't access before. It also made it possible to buy things without having to go to the post office or a mailbox and actually send off a letter with your payment. If you had the guts to put your credit card information into a website order form, you could now buy stuff online. So you could register shareware much more easily. You know, it's interesting, even though there was that much bigger audience there. I mean, you know, famously, there are products, for example, WinRAR, where it's a bit of a meme that, you know, no one's ever registered WinRAR. And <laughs> LGR even did a video actually registering it. They got like a million views because everyone was so interested in what happened. It, it kind of felt like that, you know, even when the internet came along and these products were much more easily available and it was easier to register them, the model of shareware kind of faded away as we got into the late 90s and early 2000s. Why do you think that happened then? Why did it kind of fall out of vogue? It had served its purpose. Shareware was, it was created as a way to, to make software uh, more readily available to people. It was an idea to give people a chance to try something before they buy it. You know, try before you buy, you guys, when you mentioned it earlier, uh, that was critical to the shareware proposition. And by the time you get to the late 90s, the message had gone through. 
pretty much everyone in that era was putting out demos or trial versions of their software. Uh, I know with games, uh, I loved getting a demo disc every month from my like PlayStation magazine subscription. And that was so exciting. You pop in the demo disc and you play the latest games on there. Uh, or if you were into p- computer gaming, you'd, you'd get your PC magazine or your, your uh, Mac magazine, whichever one you liked the most. They all had CDs attached to them. And on those CDs, you'd get a mix of shareware stuff and commercial game demos. Everyone was doing demos in those days. And that blurred the lines between shareware and commercial software. And so there was less need for shareware. And gradually, shareware just sort of faded away, and it didn't help that it had a murky reputation because there was still a lot of people abusing the concepts, trying to sell really, really bad software, uh, or they had they'd made something that was actually good, but they put out a shareware version that was so crippled and non-functional that it might as well not exist. You you couldn't do anything really with it. And so shareware just evolved itself out of existence. <laughs> Maybe you could say it that way. It, it, it didn't need to be around anymore. And in the game scene, we finally got a, a good name to describe indie software, which was indie. It's amazing that through the 80s and the 90s, we weren't calling them indie games. We were calling them shareware games or PD games. No one thought of calling them indie games. Well, let's talk about your book then, Richard, Shareware Heroes. Now this, I mean, I, I've read it before we started recording today, and it's a real love letter to shareware and, uh, you know, an, an incredible detailed look at the 80s and 90s. Um, why did you want to write the book then, and who have you spoken to for it? Tell us a bit about it. The book idea emerged out of a chapter that I wrote on my other book, The Secret History of Mac Gaming. Uh, which actually had the same title. I had a I had a chapter in there called Shareware Heroes, uh, which I obviously I pinched for the title of this book. And I had known being a Mac person growing up that there was a, a really big and vibrant shareware scene on the Mac. And I, I was interested in exploring that more, but I was particularly interested in digging into the, the wider world of shareware. I, I had had fleeting interactions with shareware on other systems uh, throughout the the 90s and and in the years since as someone who's interested in retro gaming, trying out all these old programs. And I wanted to learn more about the stories behind the games and the business model and the marketing because shareware, it seems, even before I started, it seemed to me that it had some sort of connection to the world of today where Pretty much everything is free. We're, we have free to play and freemium and uh, microtransactions and uh, all, the, all these ideas that uh, are, are very closely aligned with shareware, with the idea that you don't have to pay, but uh, you can pay if you want to get more stuff. If you want to get the, get the full experience or get an advantage or something, then you pay some money. And so I wanted to learn about that. And no one had really dug into it. So I thought, I'll be the one who, who will dig into this. So I'll, I'll do the research. I'll talk to a whole lot of people about it. And I'm glad I did because it was really, really interesting uh, journey for me to, to learn about. And I got to talk to a lot of people. I think I did um, I don't know, 40, 50 interviews uh, on top of all the, the research. I, got, I went digging into 
uh, newspapers.com archives and um, archive.org's magazine archives and uh, whatever else I could find. So I got to talk to Scott Miller, uh, the founder of Apogee. He, he's really critical because he came up with the Apogee model that made Shareware Games work uh, before him. Nobody really was making money from Shareware Games, as we talked about. Uh, John Romero from id Software. Uh, obviously, he's another huge name. He He's one of the two Johns who changed the world. <laughs> Had a whole book written about him. Sticking with the, the first-person shooter theme, there was Ken Silverman, who made the build engine that powered Duke Nukem 3D. And before that, he made this really weird, quirky game that I think is delightful called Ken's Labyrinth, which is a, it's a largely non-violent first-person shooter with uh, quirky things like uh, a wall you can walk through that literally says on it, the texture is painted on, walk through this wall. Uh, or you, you come across a room where there's a gigantic eight ball that rolls into a hole and uh, when it goes down the hole, it it screams, ah! And he was and like uh, 13 or 14 <laughs> when he did that as well, wasn't he? He was, he was 17 when he did that. Oh, and he made it with a, a friend from down the, from like a two streets over or something, Andy Cotter, who was 13. Uh, so it was these two kids basically making this game and had a lot of fun in it. And he ended up getting a deal with Epic to publish it. I think it's amazing that there is a book, you know, dedicated to this kind of forgotten genre because, I mean, Shareware was such a big deal in the 80s and 90s computer scene. And uh, in, as, as the uh, subtitle of your book says, the renegades who redefined gaming at the dawn of the internet, which I think is a great description. And the book's available now. Then how do people get hold of it if they want to read your book then, Richard? Uh, well, you can get a hardback edition, which uh, is is very nice to hold and, and, and read from. I've got got it right next to me here it, it's it's much more uh, manageable shape and size than than the mac gaming uh behemoth that you could you could smack people over the head with and, and they wouldn't be getting up <laughs> this one <laughs> this one's a bit a bit thinner a bit more manageable uh you can get that direct from unbound my publisher uh, or there's a paperback edition that you can get from amazon and the likes uh, and i have a website where you can go to get links to these things and learn whatever else you want about the book. That is at sharewareheroes.com. I think uh, everyone should go there anyway, because I have styled it like an old DOS program. So it's kind of fun to, to look at, get a bit of nostalgia. Yeah, I'm looking now. That's a very nice design. That'll take people straight back when they see that. Well, Richard, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, best of luck with the book. Obviously, I'll put a link to your website in our show notes as well, but if people just want to click through to it, um, definitely be a good read for uh, anyone who remembers those days of shareware ruling the world. So uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of your stories, Richard. It's always nice to talk to you. Thank you. This was fun. 